Okay, sure. Got people slowly coming in. Give them a couple of minutes. Yeah. The only thing on this, is, at least as far as I know, on this system, when I look in my iPad, I just see myself. I just see nothing else but that. Yeah, you're on um, a webinar. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. everybody else comes they in. Could to, see me, right? yeah, they, they could can see me. Right. They can see me. Right. That's right. Yeah, I've been doing this now, you know, since COVID started. So, um, I'm used to the the system. It just is. Uh, it's just not as good a system as teaching in person. You know. Absolutely. I already have a yeah. hand up. <laughs> Aviva, did you want to ask something or no? Nope, she put it down. Okay. Uh, All right. We're gonna go ahead and start. Take it away, okay. Mr. Dwoskin. First thank presentation you. of the new year. Th thank you, Maria. Thank you so much. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I want to wish everyone a very happy new year. I hope that 2022 turns out to be better than 2021 was. Um, um, and uh, what I thought I would do today was to just sketch a little bit of some of the um, uh, major challenges that uh, we are facing. And then... Um, to talk in a bit, a bit in detail about that crisis in Kazakhstan, to talk about that country in particular, to learn something about it. Um, so that's kind of how I envisioned uh, the class today. And um, we'll start off, of course, with the major uh, challenge of the year, which is exactly the same one as it was last year, which is about COVID. And um, there's nothing really that can be said about how the world is progressing, uh, what challenges it faces in general without talking about this uh, most intriguing and most distressing um, epidemic. And it keeps changing all the time. And so uh, things change along with it. And, um, you know, there's nothing sort of in the world, whether it's politics or whether it's the economics or whether it's um, uh, culture or sport or any other category of human existence that isn't affected by this uh, ever-changing uh, uh, virus. Um, the, it affects everything from travel to shopping, to working remotely, uh, to hospitals who uh, have to decide who to treat and who not to treat. Um, uh, it affects world, world trade because ports have been slow to reopen because their own employees have caught COVID. Um, um, uh, uh, we had you know, a huge wave at the beginning and then we had a big second wave and then we had a big recovery and then another wave is starting now. But if you take a look at uh, where we stand now to where we stand before it all started, there's still 3 million people fewer working, 3 million fewer people working in the US today in jobs than were pre-COVID. Um, and of course that's despite, you know, a small increase in population in the past two years. So uh, it has really taken a toll. Um, um, people left their jobs and didn't come back. Uh, either because, you know, they reoriented themselves um, uh, and, and the, the, the sort of wave of recovery happened so quickly that companies who had laid off uh, staff were not able to rehire them fast enough and people left what they considered to be the hardest or worst jobs and, and didn't come back to them. And so that alone has led to a kind of a, a push to increase wages, which has happened in the last year in a faster pace than ever happened before. 
So uh, one of the themes of this year uh, is going to be the theme we haven't heard of in 20 odd years, which is the theme of inflation or the challenge of inflation, we'll call it. And um, uh, figures have shown consistently now that inflation is running at that four plus percent, which in general is not considered to be stable or, or, or um, good for an economy. And it's a challenge that uh, countries worldwide are facing and we'll have to decide what to do about it. Um, so this uh, inflation or meaning the uh, increase in prices faster than the increase in productivity, that's about a, a way to define inflation, um, it is caused by shortages of, in supply of labor, shortages in supply of materials, shortages in supply of energy and, and demand for all these things, which exceeds the supply of all these things. So when demand is, goes up faster than supply goes up, you have increase in prices. And this increase in prices is, uh, is uh, what's known as inflation. Um, COVID is a cause of a lot of this problem, not all of it, but a lot of it, because it's caused bottlenecks uh, in ports, is caused people not to want to go to work because they're afraid to get COVID or they already have COVID and they can't go back to work. Um, uh, it, um, it, it, uh, the, uh, the, the, the layoffs during COVID um, meant that there was uh, no um, supply of materials being manufactured or created. And therefore when the demand went up, there was a shortage of supply. And so you could sort of see how the story of COVID fits itself into the story of inflation uh, pretty well. It may not be a 100% kind of explanation for it, but it's a pretty uh, good starting point to try to explain what, you know, um, the, the sources of inflation. Um, the figures uh, of unemployment, in the US are now down to 3.9%. And in Canada, counting by a slightly different method are down to about 5.9%. And this, these are historically quite low numbers. And uh, they indicate that there is not a lot of slack in the um, economy and therefore wages have to go up in order to entice workers to, to come to a job. Um, Inflation means higher interest rates because it's the governments that set the interest rates through the banks. And when they see that inflation is progressing, they raise interest rates in order to cool down the economy. So how does that happen? Uh, if people have to pay more to borrow money, like let's say to buy a house or to buy a car or to buy any other large, um, outlay of expenses, a renovation on a house, a second home, for example. If all of this costs more, it means that people will, will, will spend less money on it will, or, or not buy it at all. And if therefore that lowers demand, and if once the demand is lowered, automatically the supply comes into line with demand, and so prices will moderate. That's the theory. Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me one sec. Um, that's the theory. But unfortunately for, for banks and for governments, nothing happens sort of overnight. So uh, a central bank can raise interest rates, but that won't stop inflation in the short run. Uh, it's much more complicated equation than that. But that's usually their, their approach is to start raising interest rates. And uh, the Federal Reserve in the United States has already said they're going to be doing raises of interest rates two, three, or four times in 2022. That's something that we can expect. And uh, one of the corollaries of, go of interest rates going up uh, usually is the stock markets go down. Uh, and that's because people, if they have an alternative of where to put their money and they can gain a better return in, in sort of bonds or fixed interest income, then they'll shift their money out of the stock market and that will then lower the value of shares 
And as we see already this year, uh, the stock market has dropped a fair bit uh, since the beginning of the year. Um, <clears throat> um, 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 now, uh, just uh, you know, to, to talk a little bit about, of course, this new Omicron um, variety. We still don't know all that much about it. Um, and we do know it's very, very contagious, and we do know that it's less um, severe um, impact on, on most people. Um, the mathematical logic is that if it's that contagious, then eventually everybody will get it. And, uh, or not everybody, but, um, you know, maybe more than half of the people will get it. And then once people do catch it, it can't sort of repeat itself. So, um, you know, we have the example of the uh, so-called Spanish flu of 1918, where the flu came in so heavily and so suddenly that once everyone caught it, it burnt itself out because it couldn't find any new, any new bodies to attack. And it, it looks to me anyway, like uh, the Omicron uh, variant is going to be like that because the moment you catch the disease, you can't re-catch it. Um, you know, uh, in the short run. And so I believe that we will see by the end of January or beginning of February, somewhere in there, that the numbers, um, recorded numbers are going to start to fall very suddenly because so many people have already been uh, affected by it. Um, needless to say, however, and as we can see by the figures, that if, if it's so contagious, there's a small percentage of people who will be severely affected, who will need hospitalization. And the total number of hospitalized patients is higher now than it was before Omicron started. Omicron started. So what it means is that the, the lack of severity in the uh, disease is made up by the number of people catching it. And so the people ending up in hospital, the numbers in hospital are, are greater than before. And uh, unfortunately, that also means that the number of deaths uh, will also go up. And that's what's happening in the US now. Uh, the number of daily deaths in the US has gone from somewhere around 1,200, which was pretty uh, stable number to now over 1,600. It's still a far cry from the peak of the Delta uh, variant, but it, it, it may end up getting there at some point or other. Excuse me again. Sorry, am I, as I said to you, my eye is just killing me here. Uh, um, uh, yeah. I'm going to just also turn on the light here. See how this looks here, just a sec. Yeah. Excuse me. Let's see. How is this any better? Is this good? Not good. Looks great. Um, yeah. Uh, I have notes and I have to read them. So um, now, uh, so the the knowns and unknowns of, of this variant are, are um, you know, the knowns are going to outnumber the unknowns the more time we have to deal with it. But I think, uh, as I summarized, I think we have a pretty good idea that uh, this will be like a kind of a big flash and then it will be going down. So leaving that aside now, let's let's look at some of the other major issues of the year. And uh, let's start with the U.S., uh, which this year, 2022, is going to be facing new elections, as if the last elections are almost not even considered to be over. But in November this year, uh, there will be midterm elections in the U.S., which will determine the uh, makeup of the Congress for the rest of the term of Mr. Biden. And uh, in all likelihood, the polls are showing that the Republicans will win either one or both of the houses of, of uh, Congress, meaning that in that case, very little will be accomplished in a legislative sense for the rest of the term of the Democrats. Now, I just read a very, very interesting poll uh, or a series of polls, and I want to quote some things to you because 
it's not a question of who wins or, or who loses the elections, but the state of the US, which as we know is extremely, extremely divided. And this division, which is um, happened um, before uh, the last election, uh, when Mr. Trump was president, he, his strategy was to divide the country into sort of good guys and bad guys. And this division stayed after the election. And as we all know, so many people in the US uh, don't believe that uh, Mr. Biden won the election uh, legitimately. Uh, and uh, so this division is carried out in, in kind of the daily political life in the US today. So um, uh, the poll, I'm gonna read you the results of a poll that was done, done or a series of polls taken at different times between uh, October 2020 and today. And 50% of Americans believe that uh, they are in a cold civil war. So it's not, an, not a hot civil war, not a fighting, not a kind of um, fighting uh, with weapons, but a kind of a civil war where the country is divided against itself. And 50% of Americans think that way. A majority of Trump voters believe that they're, now this is really a shocking, uh, a shocking uh, statistic, that a majority of Trump voters um, want, want their state to secede from the US. Um, 41% of Biden voters feel that, quote, it's time to split up the USA. One third of voters under 30 years old expect a civil war. One quarter uh, thought that at least one state will secede in the, in, the, in the next 10 years. And one third say that violence uh, against a state is sometimes justified. Of course, this is a feeling uh, felt uh, much more among Republicans at this point. So if, if people think that this idea that the US is a divided country, if they think it's an exaggeration, these polls are showing that it's not. And of course, a country which is divided against itself can't really act with one voice. They can't meet um, uh, uh, challenges that are important because the division in the country is so great. If one half feels that the government is not legitimate, then any of the actions the government takes or any demands that the government makes on the people is considered to be not legitimate and therefore they're not gonna do it. And so if any threat hits the US, either a threat, an internal threat, for example, a threat of climate change uh, or maybe an external threat, um, especially not a violent external threat, but let's say, some sort of threat caused uh, again by climate or uh, an economic threat having to do with trade, uh, the country can't act together in order to fight this threat because the country is so divided against itself. And so uh, it was long predicted that the, uh, the uh, 20th century was America's century. And we know that for sure especially after 19, the First World War. The rest of the century, America was the most important country, the strongest country, um, the most powerful country. But uh, when the 20th century turned into the, the 21st century, um, many people seeing China having come up so far made a kind of a long-term prediction saying that the 21st century would be China's century. And uh, we are one fifth through the 21st century. And I think that uh, it would not be unreasonable to imagine that by uh, the turn of the next century, that China will be the strongest country in the world. I think uh, the US is going down and China is going up. So at a certain point, the two lines will cross. Uh, in economics, uh, certain economists have already said that the total Chinese economy is already bigger than the total American economy. 
And um, when you consider all the other factors that come into it, which is, you know, influence on other countries, uh, relationships with other countries, um, the buildup of weapons in, in, in the Chinese military, uh, uh, foreign aid, which is being given out by the two countries. When you measure all these different things, China is on an up and the U.S. is on a down. And so uh, at some point or other, it seems as if the, the lines will cross. Needless to say, the population in China is uh, four times bigger than the U.S. population. And so uh, the standard of living is increasing faster in, in China than in the U.S. And therefore, uh, maybe, you know, hard as it may seem to imagine, uh, it may be that the average Chinese person in 80 years will be better off than the average American. Uh, only time will tell, but it's not a prediction which is sort of uh, out of this out of this world. Um, uh, the also, you know, it, it's um, now more than a year since the last U.S. election. And there were some people who were saying, well, you know, the country will come together and uh, that um, all the division that uh, Trump uh, caused will be uh, condemned once he's out of office. But the fact is that these divisions have gone, gone even greater, that there isn't any indication showing that the country is becoming more united. Uh, in fact, the, it seems like almost the opposite is true. So, um, uh, the, um, the efforts made by the new administration to, for example, uh, f uh, amend voting laws, to uh, work on the environment uh, under some sort of a green deal, to uh, change the taxation system so that wealthier people pay more taxes, um, and, the, and, the, and the savings be passed on to uh, let's say expand the healthcare system to improve uh, or change the immigration system uh, to uh, spend a lot more money on infrastructure. Um, some of the infrastructure bills bill was passed, but um, the money to pay for it and all the extra add-ons that they wanted to do, um, such as creating a free... Uh, daycare system, uh, improving the medical system for people who have no insurance, uh, improving um, rural areas through uh, better transportation systems, um, increasing uh, broadband uh, coverage in the US so that everyone has internet. Uh, none of these things have, have happened yet and are very unlikely to happen considering the very large division in, uh, in the country. Um, so uh, like I was saying, um, if the, uh, in the US, if the elections turn out to be um, won by the Republicans, uh, they will completely uh, sort of put brakes on the uh, legislative process. And uh, the brakes are most, are half on now even with the Democrats controlling the presidency and the House of Representatives and the um, Senate, but because it's so close in the two houses, uh, it's very hard for the Democrats to sort of push through legislation by force. Now, <clears throat> let's leave the US for a second and let's talk about the uh, next big uh, country that I mentioned before, China. What does, the, what does 2022 look like for them? There are certain themes that have emerged so far. Uh, one is that the president, uh, Xi, is, is solidly in power, that the, uh, the system that was invented by the Chinese, um, which was to limit a president's term to two years, that system has gone out the window. And President Xi has been kind of reappointed, we'll call it for uh, ever, you could say. Um, that on the uh, military front, China has in, is, is increasing its military capacity uh, by leaps and bounds. 
uh, especially in, in the Navy and the Air Force uh, things, um, they have been sort of rattling their sabers even more strongly on the issue of Taiwan, uh, trying to kind of, um, uh, let's say, force Taiwan to rejoin with China, which is a dream that they've been having since 1949. Um, they removed the last vestiges of Hong Kong's independence. Uh, if you might recall that uh, uh, Hong Kong officially was taken over by China in 1997, with the um, condition that uh, Hong Kong would be able to maintain its, its sort of freedoms uh, and system, legal system, uh, and, and um, uh, sort of a self-administration system that they've had. So they were supposed to maintain these things for 50 years. So they called it the uh, one country, two systems approach. But uh, it seems that China has just became too impatient with that approach. And they pretty well suborned the government in Hong Kong to do whatever China wanted. And uh, we've seen arrests of opponents of the government. We've seen closing down of media, of, of internets, of newspapers, of uh, uh, any kind of independent criticism of China is not acceptable now in Hong Kong even though they were supposed to have a sort of this sort of independence until 2047. Uh, nobody, no opponent of China can today survive politically or even, even economically in Hong Kong. Um, the other theme in, in China now is that the, the government seems to be uh, wanting to crack down on any, any um, sort of independent locus of power and an independent locus of power in China could be, for example, wealthy people or wealthy companies. And China has made it clear that although they support the idea of economic growth and they, they, they don't oppose uh, success economically, they wanna make sure that that success is dependent on the government. And so what they've done in the last year is they have told uh, companies not to list on the New York Stock Exchange, but to list on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange or the Shanghai Stock Exchange. Uh, they have um, put controls as they've long had on foreign companies operating in China. You may know that, of course, that the, there's no such thing as an independent internet system in China, that um, the, the sort of search engines are all run in China that there is a sort of censorship uh, of the internet in China. There's hundreds of thousands of people who are uh, surveying uh, chat programs, entertainment programs, um, all kinds of things where people might express their own opinions are being listened to uh, by some you know, people in offices somewhere. And so the, China does have really complete control not only over their of the domestic um, internet, but of any foreign um, media people who come into China to try to kind of expand the, the boundaries of, of free speech, those that's become impossible today. They've also uh, arrested and confiscated money from people who they don't like, who they feel are opponents. And in general, they're trying to kind of um, lower the gap between the rich and the poor um, by um, uh, preventing banks from lending in, an, in a kind of a reckless way. Um, some very large companies have gone bankrupt or are close to bankrupt, and China has yet to decide exactly what path to take with these companies. Um, they, they like the idea of punishing the the shareholders, but they don't like the idea of punishing the customers of these companies uh, or small investors in these companies. Um, and uh, so this whole real estate fiasco that's been going on there is, is in the middle of being sort of sorted out in a certain way. Um, uh, the Chinese economy is slowing down. Uh, compared to the past, but if you look at last year, 2021, their economy uh, increased by some seven odd percent, uh, which was, uh, you know, far better than uh, North American economies, far better than the European economies. 
and pretty well the best results of any large powerful country. So even in slowing down their economy still grew uh, at a much faster rate. Part of it, of course, could be explained by the fact that the COVID um, uh, epidemic did not, although it originated in China, uh, China dealt with it so effectively that they could keep their economy open all the time when the rest of the world had it sort of slow down, open up, slow down, open up. And um, when things sort of got back to normal until just recently, China was able to take advantage of the uh, demand and um, you know, uh, increase their production. Um, the deal that the government made with the Chinese people is that uh, in exchange for loyalty uh, of the population, they would increase the living standards in the country. And um, uh, the Chinese government knows that, that, that they are not um, uh, sort of, that, that in other words, the approval that the, the silent majority gives to the government is conditional on living standards improving all the time. And so the Chinese government has to be aware of this and has to do everything they can to increase living standards. Um, and uh, so far, so far, they've been successful in doing that. Uh, you know, things that are, so many unknowns are there. If COVID spreads into China again and, and shuts the whole country down, uh, they might have some of the same civil unrest that we've seen and we are seeing these days in Europe, uh, over and uh, you know, in Australia over uh, COVID restrictions and things like that. Um, um, another challenge that China faces is is their slowing population growth. In other words, the one child per per family policy that was in place for some forty odd years has resulted in only one child being born, and that one child is now working, uh, but that one child has two parents to look after, and um, he, automatically then the sort of ratio of older people to, to working people is changing gradually year by year, and this is a challenge for China as how they will end up supporting all these retired people with so few workers. And, this is going to be uh, an issue over the next 20, 30, 40 years that they're going to have to, to deal with. Um, the, uh, the increased living standards in China have also caused uh, some of the cheaper um, uh, work to be exported uh, to other countries, especially countries in, in, in Southeast Asia. And China is not against this because they're the ones who are still in control of the uh, contracts and it gives them influence over countries like Vietnam and Myanmar and uh, Cambodia, especially Thailand, even the Philippines. Uh, and uh, China has really expanded its world footprint, especially in Africa, especially in Central Asia, um, tremendously over the last 15 or 20 odd years. Um, the uh, COVID uh, has also made countries like the wealthy countries in Europe and the US think about um, resourcing their supplies. Uh, so the threats that China is giving, uh, the physical problems of getting goods from China to the rest of the world has uh, caused some amount of reorientation of um, of uh, you know business and production uh, away from China and closer to either to the U.S. itself or to countries like Mexico, uh, which are you know much closer to the U.S. than China is, and so that's happening uh, also in Europe that they want to rely less on China and then you know they may open up plants in some of the poorer European countries. Um, in Southeastern Europe or Eastern Europe to uh, replace China. It's, it's a small trend, but it's a growing trend. Um, uh, uh, so that's, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of a, in, in a nutshell, that's kind of where China is oriented. 
they, China has not taken the road that Russia has to sort of build up a huge army and send troops all over the world to uh, put out fires and to uh, make friends and influence people. Uh, China is still working more or less with money and trade to do that. Um, but it may be that China may uh, sort of uh, try to copy Russia, uh, looking at the successes that Russia has had lately. And, you know, let's say send in their troops to stabilize some civil unrest, maybe in Myanmar or some other nearby countries. Uh, it remains to be seen, but it's not a step that China has taken up until now. Um, the ongoing threat of climate change, we'll talk about that a little bit. Just check my time a bit. Um, 2021 was the fifth warmest year on record. So close to being the warmest, but not the very warmest. But as we know that, uh, you know, the 10 warmest years on record have all happened since the year 2000. So we know that the world is getting warmer. Um, there have been huge floods. We saw them in Europe, we saw them in China, we saw them in BC, we saw heat records uh, in Canada. We you remember that day in Canada, we had 49.6 degrees in, um, in BC, which was, a, which was a record for any uh, inhabited place in all of Canada and the US. Um, we've had fires, of course, in BC, the town burned down the next day. Uh, forest fires in California and Western US in BC itself. Um, and uh, despite lots of uh, pledges of different countries in, in world conferences, like the one in Glasgow was in 2021, the amount of CO2 keeps going up in the atmosphere. And the CO2 is coming from transportation, from heating, electrical generation, um, and from the oil and gas industry. And uh, there hasn't been any um, significant reduction of, uh, you know, of, of CO2 coming into the atmosphere because it comes in from those sources and from agriculture. And we're sort of nibbling around the edges with the power generation and with transportation, electric cars and things like that. But um, the fact is that it's like a moving train or a moving ship, you know, even if you try to stop everything at once, uh, the world will still get warmer and um, they had rain for the very, very first time in recorded history in at the far top of Greenland. And so um, all of these things taken together show uh, that um, either the world will have to start thinking about uh, mitigation, which is most likely, uh, or they'll have to take the efforts to uh, uh, stop carbon dioxide and methane getting into the atmosphere. And, and those stoppages would be very painful. Huge raises in prices of gasoline, for example, uh, maybe barring the uh, purchase of, uh, of, of, uh, of cars and trucks uh, that run on uh, gasoline uh, or diesel, um, you know, uh, charging far more for airplane flights. I mean, the the, the, the uh, you know, the answers are there. It's just that the cure is more painful than the, the disease, let's say. And so uh, uh, mitigation is going to be the answer. You know, how do we deal with the, this uh, issue? How do we deal with uh, the sea level rise? How do we deal with, um, uh, you know, increased heat? Um, you know, all of these things are sort of engineering problems. And the engineering problems are the ones that are the more easily solved ones. Um, let's, uh, let me just take my time now to talk about, um, to talk about uh, what's going on in Kazakhstan. I think we'll just change, change, uh, change uh, themes here. So um, you all know that um, the Russians have sent troops into Kazakhstan. There was a kind of a, riot which turned into a sort of an uprising and so um you know the, this area of the world is one of the least known ones to um to westerners because it's so far away and because it's so isolated and because it was part of the soviet union for so long um and because it's not um 
uh, on an ocean. So cruise ships don't go there. So people don't get a chance to sort of visit and see what's doing there. But Kazakhstan is a very interesting country in and of itself. So it is one of the so-called stand countries that became independent after the Soviet Union broke up in 1991. So Kazakhstan is one and Uzbekistan is one and Turkmenistan is one, uh, Kyrgyzstan is one and Tajikistan is one. So there's five stand countries. I personally have visited Uzbekistan and thought it was a phenomenal country to visit. Uh, Uzbekistan is the most populated of these countries. Kazakhstan though is, is the largest in area of these countries. In fact, Kazakhstan is the ninth largest country in the world by size. So definitely a very huge place. Um, its population is only 19 million. So it's a huge, enormous territory with not very many people. And one of the most interesting things about Kazakhstan in the modern history is the changeover in population that, that happened there uh, in a relatively short time after the uh, independence uh, of the country. Um, so uh, just a little bit of history about that place. So it's located, first of all, in Central Asia. It's to the east of the Caspian Sea. Um, it's uh, bordered by Russia on the north, uh, uh, um, on the north of it, and uh, by the other stands on the south of it, and um, it even touches into China on the east of it. So it's completely landlocked country. It's nowhere near an ocean. And uh, it uh, was a country where the, in, you know, in sort of middle history, the Mongols and the Turks were both peoples who uh, lived in there and the people who emerged from, from, from the uh, occupation of these two uh, uh, ethnic groups became the Kazakh people themselves. So there's sort of a mixture of Mongols and Turks um, they became Muslims uh, uh, over a thousand years ago. So, you know, uh, Islam spread rapidly into Central Asia. Um, and uh, they were kind of a sort of an independent kind of uh, self-ruling people until the Russians showed up in the 1700s. And the Russians, of course, were expanding their empire. Uh, they uh, came into contact with the Kazakhs and they eventually uh, conquered Kazakhstan. Um, one of their interests of the Russians in expanding out there was to prevent the British from moving up from India uh, or from, you know, Pakistan, we'll say, you know, uh, British India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and moving into Central Asia from the south. So the Russians sort of beat them to the punch moving in from the uh, west and um, took over that territory because they had the ability to do so. And by the 1800s, uh, Russia had uh, conquered that area. They started expanding railway system to um, you know, build this sort of Trans-Siberian railway um, going from Moscow all the way out to the Pacific coast. And that part of that rail railway passed through Kazakhstan. The railway brought settlers from Russia. Uh, 400,000 settlers came in in the uh, 19th century and a million came in to settle between 1900 and 1930. Um, the uh, Kazakhs, of course, resented all these foreigners coming in, but they couldn't do anything about it. Um, when the communist revolution happened in 1917, uh, the, like many other peoples, the Kazakhs resisted the revolution, uh, and it wasn't until 1919 that they were completely overcome. And the so-called Kazakh uh, uh, Soviet Socialist Republic was established in 1936 uh, with the boundaries that they have today. So uh, from then till now, that the identity of the Kazakhs was sort of put in there by the Soviets, and it, it um, you know, it stayed until now. The capital city 
uh, in those days was Alma-Ata, which is the biggest city in Kazakhstan, but it's really close to the southern border. Um, the uh, 1930s was an interesting period there because besides the usual famines and arrests of people and arrests of intelligentsia and all the bad things that Stalin did to everybody, uh, he also exiled people he didn't like to Kazakhstan. So there were groups and individuals that Stalin didn't like. He set up prison camps there. Uh, the the um, uh, Some of the famous prison camps that were written about uh, by Soviet writers were established there in Kazakhstan. But he exiled whole groups of people that he didn't like to Kazakhstan. And among those groups of people were the Crimean Tatars uh, and Greeks who were living in Crimea and also Volga Germans. So there was, there were, you know, when, when, when the Soviet Union was created, there were over a million people of German descent living in uh, Russia. Uh, these were people who uh, the Tsar Peter invited to come into, Peter the Great invited, and Catherine the Great invited these Germans to come in to kind of build a modern economy and show these backward Russians how to, uh, live um, uh, domestically and culturally. And these people and their descendants ended up settling in Russia and stayed there. Uh, needless to say, when, you know, uh, when, uh, when the uh, Second World War broke out, uh, Stalin saw these people as, as potential enemies and picked them all up and sent them to Kazakhstan uh, just to be out of the way, let's put it like that. So uh, some 400,000 Germans were sent to Kazakhstan by Stalin. And, you know, needless to say, without going into details, the conditions of the sending were not exactly a first class, I would say. Um, <clears throat> uh, also, uh, uh, Jewish people who were fleeing from uh, the Nazis in the 1930s, uh, after the war broke out from Poland, and from occupied Ukraine and from occupied Belarus, they moved east and they were also shipped to Kazakhstan because uh, it was a place that people got shipped to. And, um, you know, there was a need there for uh, uh, people to uh, work uh, and in agriculture and in uh, services. And so Kazakhstan became a kind of a dumping point or collection point of all kinds of unwanted minorities and, 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 and foreigners um, because uh, it was easy to, to uh, do that and they, they wouldn't be disturbing these sort of native Russians who, who, who might resent all these newcomers. And so Stalin decided to send them all there. Uh, in 1959, the uh, census was done and Kazakhs were only 30% of all of Kazakhstan. And the Russians were 43% of all of Kazakhstan. Um, uh, the Russians also decided to build a nuclear testing plant there. They built a launch site for, for, um, for um, rockets uh, by Kanur. Again, they sort of figured, you know, if anything goes wrong, it's the Kazakhs that will be uh, put out if some nuclear experiment goes wrong. And, you know, they didn't want to risk Russian lives, but they didn't much care about Kazakh lives. And by the way, this uh, space uh, launch station, like the equivalent of Cape Kennedy in uh, Russia, in, sorry, it's in Kazakhstan, uh, Russia has a lease on that property until 2050. So, you know, the equivalent of Cape Kennedy in Kazakhstan called Baikonur, that uh, they are um, still in charge of. Um, comes the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, Kazakhstan was actually uh, not one of the um, countries or, or, you know, Soviet republics who really wanted to separate. They weren't like Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia and the Baltics who were just dying to get out of the Soviet orbit. The um, leader of Kazakhstan was very influential in the Politburo. He was one of the top leaders of the Soviet Union. And uh, he, Mr. Nazarbayev, became the first president of Kazakhstan. So in other words, there was no so-called 
let's say, a revolution of leaders when the Soviet Union collapsed. It's just that the sort of local boss um, uh, in Moscow of Kazakhstan became the new president of Kazakhstan. And his name was Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. And he ruled Kazakhstan from 1991 when they became independent until 2019. In other words, until two years ago. And uh, he's still, he, some people say that he was still the boss even up until today. Now, when Kazakhstan became independent, this enormous movement of people happened because all of a sudden the Russian speaking people who were kind of lording it over the locals uh, became uh, vulnerable in a new state that was not run by them, not run by the Russians, not run by the Communist Party. And uh, they just picked up and left and went back to uh, wherever they came from. So in other words, the Russians went back to Russia, the Ukrainians went back to Ukraine. Um, uh, the Jewish population uh, who saw themselves as Russians went back to live in Russia or moved to Israel when uh, they were able to get out of the country. And so the percentage of Kazakhs went from 30% uh, in 19, what did I say it was, 1959, uh, to today the Kazakhs are 73% uh, of Kazakhstan. So imagine how many people must have moved out of the country in order for that shift to happen. And this shift was not just um, uh, not just in Kazakhstan, but all of the Stan republics experienced somewhat of the same uh, movement. The difference is that Kazakhstan had far more Russians there to begin with, because as I said before, they were a plurality of the population before the Soviet Union broke up. And today they are a small minority. In the other Stan republics, they were a smaller minority to start with, and they're an even smaller minority today. So this movement of Russians, they were the ruling class. They were the educators. They were the uh, engineers. They were the bosses of the, of the state-owned companies. They had all the power in all of these different um, uh, Soviet republics. And once they all became independent and leadership passed to the local, uh, local um, uh, ethnic majority, uh, the Russians were like, like uh, you know, the French in Algeria. They sort of had felt as if they had no choice but to get out of the country. And, and, um, and they did, you know, not completely, but uh, for the most part, they did. Um, Nonetheless, though, uh, Russian uh, is still like the second language and the business language in most of those places, uh, only now being replaced by English. So, um, you know, when I was in Uzbekistan, there were still plenty of Russian signs. Um, all the older generation spoke Russian, uh, but the younger generation spoke English as a second language. The other thing that happened, including in Kazakhstan, is a decision to change the alphabet, changing the way the language is written from Cyrillic letters, in other words, Russian letters, to Latin letters. And they've done this in order just to kind of, uh, let's say, um, you know, make themselves uh, uh, equal and easily reached by the rest of the world and to sort of fit in with the rest of the Western, Western world um, because the Cyrillic alphabet is only familiar to people in Russia and, um, you know, the other Russian uh, Orthodox uh, countries like uh, Serbia and uh, places like that. So um, one of the things that this new president did, new old president, we'll call him, is he moved the capital city away from Almata to Astana, which was a, a kind of a a way of bringing um, more, more uh, power away from the Russian-dominated city uh, to the more Kazakh-dominated uh, city. So he did that in 2017. And guess what happened in 2019? 
the name of the capital city of Astana was changed to, guess what, Nur Sultan, who's the first name of this new president, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. So they named the capital city after him. It's like George Washington naming Washington after himself uh, when he became, you know, uh, when he became uh, the first president of the country. So like instead of having Ottawa called Ottawa, they could call it McDonald after uh, Sir John A if he would name the city after himself. So this is, gives you a kind of a bit of an idea of how politics go over there. Um, the country though has tremendous amounts of uh, resources. So uh, it's a huge oil and gas producer. And because of that, the GDP is somewhere around $10,000 a person, which is not, you know, it's just not that far from the Chinese, the GDP will say. Um, uh, they have uh, huge resources of uranium, the second largest in the world, uh, chromium, lead and zinc, the fifth largest copper reserves, uh, and the 11th largest reserves of oil, oil and gas in the world. And this oil and gas, a lot of it is located in the Caspian Sea itself. And uh, so they have pipelines that are going from there into Russia itself and from Russia into Western Europe. And that's the way they've been selling their uh, oil up until now. But with China getting so, so interested in, in expanding its own influence and with the com complete um, dependence uh, of China on world oil and gas resources, uh, China is building pipelines that go from Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan into China itself. So that gives these countries the chance to decide how they wanna market their natural resources. And China is definitely one of the ones uh, competing uh, for that. Um, uh, the, let me just check, okay. The, the riots, we'll do bring ourselves up to date now. So uh, two years ago, Mr. Nur Sultan, unlike most dictators, uh, decided to voluntarily retire. There wasn't any kind of uh, civil unrest which forced him out. Uh, needless to say, he, he you know, stole plenty of money in his, uh, in his spare time and um, you know, lives a very uh, comfortable life. But for whatever reason, he did decide to uh, give his deputy the power, Mr. Tokayev, who, who um, uh, established a slightly more representative and democratic regime. Uh, but Mr. Nur Sultan uh, still kept control of all the military and the secret service and all that. So it could be that all these riots that have happened now in a sense are a rivalry between these two leaders uh, the current one trying to take over the powers of the former one. So that's one possibility. The actual spark that started them, and so far 165 people have been killed supposedly, was that they doubled the price of, um, of, uh, of uh, gas, what they call, what, what do they call it now? They call it, they call it methane in, um, you know, in Uzbekistan. But the cars run on a kind of a natural gas preparation. And, um, you know, because of the pinch in economic situations, the current government doubled that price. Even though it's still low, they doubled it, and that's what caused the riots. But you never have riots, uh, well, not usually, uh, you know, just because something goes up in price. There's always the built-up frustration, the pent-up frustration over, over corruption and over the lack of democracy in the country, uh, which set on the demonstrators. And once the demonstrators start demonstrating and if the police follow their instructions and they shoot some demonstrators, then they start demonstrating against the shooting and then things sort of snowball from there. And because things sort of snowballed, the head of, uh, of Kazakhstan, Mr. Tokayev panicked and he called on the Russians to send in troops to um, sort of tamp down the resistance. Now, uh, these Soviet republics, uh, former Soviet republics, do have these sort of security agreements with Russia that if anything goes wrong, they could call on Russia to come and help. And this is the first time that Russia has sent troops in uh, in a way um, 
uh, under this uh, power. You know, Russia sent troops in, of course, to Armenia, to Azerbaijan, to Georgia. Uh, you know, some of these are aggressive entrances and some are not. But uh, this is a sort of the time when the, uh, the actual president called the Russians to send in troops, which he did. And, um, you know, to try to calm down these riots. Uh, we've seen riots like this starting in other countries, like in Egypt and Tunisia and India, because uh, prices are, are jumped out of, uh, suddenly for subsidized goods. And in general, it's not a good economic idea for a country to subsidize the cost of something because it ends up encouraging consumption, which normally wouldn't happen. And usually the consumption is done by and these, and these subsidies uh, affect everybody. So in other words, even a wealthy person still gets their gas for nothing when really the taxation system should be progressive. Uh, in other words, taxing people more who can afford to pay more. But when you just subsidize the price of bread or you subsidize the price of gas, everybody benefits and it's a kind of a wasteful sort of spending for the government. But when they try to change their minds, that's when people, uh, you know, get instantly upset and start rioting. And that's what happened in this case. Um, you know, sometimes there's ethnic conflicts mixed in, sometimes religious conflicts mixed in. Um, but uh, Kazakhstan is a officially secular state. It's a uh, Muslim population uh, of Muslims of 75%, but it's officially secular. Um, you know, and as it was in Uzbekistan, which I visited, um, you know, the people are Muslim in, in sort of outlook and in name, um, but there's very few, uh, uh, let's say, orthodox people or very few uh, strong believers. And, um, you know, the people are by and large very secular minded. And so Kazakhstan is a secular state. It has relations with Israel, uh, like many of the other secular Muslim states. And um, that's about that. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Yeah, so I think that's the end of the story about Kazakhstan. And um, it's... Uh, um, just uh, to uh, speak just a touch about Russia, <clears throat> uh, since that was one of their interventions. Uh, they've intervened, of course, also in the Ukraine, where uh, the, um, uh, the two countries are almost at war, and President Biden is trying to figure out how to not make that war happen. Um, Russia's economy has been kept afloat by, again, the high price of natural resources like oil and gas and by um, a determination of the president, uh, Putin, to push his powers as far as he can go. So he's intervened in Syria, he's intervened in Belarus, he's intervened in the Ukraine, took over pieces of territory of the Ukraine, of Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, and he's taken over pieces of Georgia. So Russia is a sort of using a military aggression uh, policy, whereas China is using a sort of an economic aggression policy to to influence the world, let's say, something like that. Um, uh, um, another big issue, and I'll finish with this, is this uh, oil pipeline, which uh, gas pipeline, sorry, which the Russians just finished building going from Russia direct to Germany in through the, uh, through the uh, Baltic Sea. And um, they are, ready and able to deliver gas directly to Germany without passing through Belarus or Ukraine and um, where the gas pipelines are going now. And so uh, this is in a certain sense, another piece of pressure that's put on the Ukraine from Russia um, that if they just go directly to Germany, they bypass the, all the fees and tolls that the Ukraine charges them. And the U.S. president is not happy about this pipeline, but um, you know the last prime minister of Germany, Merkel, chancellor, she wanted it because uh, Germany was paying and Europe is paying the highest prices in the world for natural gas, and they would like to be able to um, lower them. And so, by having 
as many different suppliers from as many different places that gives them the opportunity to uh, sort of, you know, take the gas wherever it's cheapest. In any case, uh, my time is up. I'm looking at my watch. So thank you very much. I'm so happy to welcome all of you again. And um, if you have any questions or comments, you tell them to Maria and Maria will tell them to me. So thanks so much again. And I hope you all had such a great uh, time off uh, over the holidays. And uh, maybe, maybe we'll just think that from now on, from today on, things are just gonna get warmer and warmer. So we may, we may have passed through the worst of the winter and uh, we have uh, maybe spring coming around the corner and with global warming, who knows, uh, you know, you may be planting orange trees uh, in April. So um, let's see what everyone has to say. Excuse me uh, one sec. Yep. If you have questions, you may put them in the chat or you can raise your hand. Comments, questions, suggestions, future subjects, uh, you know, just let me know. A quiet but attentive audience today. Yeah, I know. You know what? It's like if you see these people, Maria, in person, um, you know, and they look at you and, and one person says something and other people say other things. And it's difficult on a Zoom because, you know, everyone is kind of sitting isolated in their own space and it's hard to kind of work off of what other people are thinking or doing or saying you know yeah well i feel less isolated now that we've had a sweep of what's going on globally so uh if there are no questions we will see you all again next week same time same place thank you so much mr dwaskin and we look forward to our next one have a great Thank day. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for coming in. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.